Welcome to His Story, a teaching series with Pastor Mickey Bryce from Center Stage Church. This nine-part series explores the story of God from a theater perspective. Now, here's Mickey Bryce. Today we're going to talk about messages called Author, Author, and I thought I'd look through my stuff at what I had where there was a special relationship with the author. Many of you know Ray Bradbury's book, Fahrenheit 451. It probably should be the instructed reading for everyone in this day and time. But it was written a while back, 50 years or so ago, and it was about the communist scare in America and about censorship and all of that. Anyway, right after we first started the church, I met a young man who, in theater, uh, down in in uh, Gilbert at the Hale Theater, and we did several shows. He was a friend of Becca's. His name was Danny, and Ray Bradbury's his grandfather. And so I got a signed copy of Ray Bradbury's book, Fahrenheit 451. If you've ever read it, you know that the phrase here, this is his handwriting. It says, Mickey, blow out that match. Ray Bradbury, blow out the match was the rallying cry for, uh, in, the book is about banning books. All the books were burned in the imagination in the book in that society. So that's my most famous author that I've ever uh, come in contact with uh, outside of the author we're going to talk about today. But everyone knows what author, author means. It's the premiere of a new play. Opening night and the play is a success as the audience applauds the performance. Everyone says, author, author, because the author is there. And he comes forward and makes a rare public appearance at the performance of his or her new work. It was also the name of a 1982 movie starring Al Pacino, and uh, the story is written by a playwright named Israel Horowitz, and it's also much like Fahrenheit 451, a, an attempt to address the problems that are seen in society. So according to Webster's Dictionary, the author is the beginner or first mover. It's an interesting way to think about it, of anything. The creator or the originator. And today... As we move from the Old Testament in our history series to the New, uh, his story brings us to the author of Scripture. No, not John, but God himself, the first mover, the creator, the originator. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Son of Man, the first mover of creation, the originator of the human race, and the author of of all of history. In the fullness of time when God's plan called for it, God himself stepped into flesh into our world. That's something that Orthodox Christianity has always taught. He grew and he lived as one of us. Not only was he the author of history, he became one of the actors as well. So here's God who wrote the story it's being produced in real time in our world, and he steps on the stage, not just in it, but as the leading character 
in history. So turn, if you would, to the book of John, the very beginning of it, chapter one, and we're going to witness what I think is the beginning of the climax of God's story, and that is the incarnation of God himself, the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah that uh, Judaism had long taught and longed for, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us as we do that. Father, thank you for Jesus today. Thank you that he is the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you today that you are real, that you are true, that you are holy, and you are perfect. Thank you, Lord, that you have written down your word so that we might know about you in the ways that we're going to talk about today. And I pray for each person that uh, is here in the room with me, as well as those who might listen to the podcast in weeks to come. Would you bless us today through your word, which is true, in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of John explains in detail this business of Jesus being the author of history. And let me give you three words that will help you kind of focus your thinking on what does that mean. Here's the three words. Jesus is the incarnation of God. Jesus is the explanation of God. And Jesus is the provision from God. The incarnation says that he is a God who came to live as a man. His life explains who God is for us to know. And Jesus is the provision because he had a task to do and he accomplished that task. Robert Louis Stevenson, author of books such as Treasure Island when he was a young child, one evening was looking down out of his front window of his house, fascinated by the lamplighter coming down the street. You remember in the old days, they would reach up and uh, light the lamps, the gas lamps on the street. And he called to his Nana, Nana, come quickly. There is a man coming down the street, punching holes in the darkness. What a wonderful picture. Because that's what Jesus Christ did when he came into our world. He punched a hole in the darkness. What a wonderful picture of that it is. Listen to what the word of God says, beginning in John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word here in Greek, the word, word, is referencing Jesus, the Messiah, not the Bible, per se. You have to go back and study what this word logos, which is translated into English as word, really in this context is talking about Jesus Christ, God made flesh. The great idea is the best way the Greeks thought about it. The big idea is this logos. And Jesus is the great idea of God. He is the person made flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Hmm. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. 
the glory of the only one, of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is perhaps one of the most beautifully poetic and theologically relevant passages that I can think of. It just, even in the English translation, is so beautiful. When you consider what's being said there, it makes it even more beautiful. The incarnation, the incarnation is a word that means that God became one of us. He became a human being. Orthodox Christianity has always taught that Jesus became a man, not a ghost. Certain theologies that arose throughout the years taught various incorrect things that Jesus was a, like a figure of humanity or he was uh, uh, some sort of idea, but not really flesh and blood. That's not what scripture teaches. It teaches that the word became flesh. He was born just like you. He grew up just like you. He had to eat. He had to drink. He was fully God and fully human. Now, I don't know how that's possible exactly because I keep on sinning because I'm a human. Try as I can, I can't make perfection work. Jesus is fully God, fully man. I don't know exactly how that fully God part dealt with the fully man part, but he did. He was limited in some physical ways. He needed water, he grew hungry, he experienced fatigue. He felt grief, joy, and compassion. All of those things can be confirmed by the story of his life. And yet, not once did he ever sin. His will and God's never strayed from each other. In fact, they are the same person. The incarnation is proof that God understands his creation. That in itself is mind-boggling. John Howard Griffin was a white man that believed he could never understood the plight of African-Americans unless he became one. In 1959, he darkened his skin with medication, sun lamps, and stains, traveled throughout the South. He wrote a book called Black Like Me, and it helped white people better understand the humiliation and discrimination that was faced daily by people of color. In the same way, Christ became one of us in order that we might better understand God. Not only was Christ the incarnation of God, he was the explanation of God. And this is taught in scripture clearly in the same book. Jesus himself told his disciples that if they had seen him, they had seen God or his father. Listen to what he says. He's talking to Thomas who never believed anything the first time. Jesus says, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And why did he say that? Because you've known me. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. Wow. You know, that's kind of like, a pretty bold claim. 
That's, if you're not telling the truth, the Jews didn't take too kindly to people claiming to be God. Here he is. It's exactly what he's claiming. And in his case, it happened to be true. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you aren't just mine. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Okay. Again, your mind is... It's true that the disciples didn't fully understand this explanation of God until after the crucifixion and resurrection. But it's also not true that Jesus never talked about his Godship, his holiness, his incarnation. He never tried to explain that he indeed was God and he came to be salvation for people like you and like me. That explanation is throughout the Old and New Testaments. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, explained to us who God is, as well as being one of us. Third thing, Jesus Christ is the provision of God. In other words, the task that was assigned to him, he accomplished it. He did it. He didn't just come so you would know who God was. He came to get something done. Uh, of all the things people could say about me, I've always loved the fact that I want people to say, well, he got the job done. He gets after it. Well, that's what Jesus did. I don't want to uh, compare myself to Jesus in any way except to say that he also got the job done for God. And being God himself, he knew exactly what it was. It was never any conflict. Jesus was God. He explained who God is, but he also had a purpose in coming to the earth. The earth was different after Jesus had lived on it and died and was resurrected. Everything changed. We began to begin to understand what the whole plan of God was because of this provision. There was no other way to deal with the problem of sin. Look around you in our world, there are hundreds of thousands of counterfeit proposals about how to deal with evil and sin. Call sin whatever you want. Leave God out of it and just call sin a mistake if you want to be incorrect, but you can call it that in a human way. Wrong choices, things we do that are dishonest, you hear people say any number of things like evil doesn't exist or there is no sin or oh, that's your reality or anything like that. Oh, if, if, if you're a believer in that, that's good for you. But the truth of the matter is it's true and Jesus accomplished it because it was true. He had to become a human being in order to become a sacrifice for our sin because sin cannot exist in the fellowship with God. And God can't just legislate it away because God is consistent with his own character and his holiness or perfection will not allow him to be in the presence of sin. So how do you get rid of the sin? You can't just say it doesn't exist because that denies God's holiness. You can't say, 
You're forgiven without sin being paid for because that's the whole picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system was that atonement had to be made. Something had to give and be paid in order for there to be forgiveness. Sacrificial system was a picture of the Lamb of God who was Jesus who actually had to die. And again, people say, oh, he didn't really die. He swooned or some other thing other than actual physical death. That's the only way sin could be atoned for because God has to look at it and say, okay, Jesus who had no sin, he owes God nothing. He paid a price and that price, that gift is attributed to anyone who will believe that he is the son of God and salvation is theirs. Jesus had to become a human being in order to do that. He had to. Listen to what John 3:16 says about the provision of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen to the second verse. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. You can go and preach a sermon on every half of every verse in those two verses. They're incredible. When is the last time you read them? Go back and read them again and just meditate on them. They are absolutely beautiful. And they're beautiful because they're true. And because they're true, they not only explain God to us, they explain his purpose so that we might be able to live in fellowship with God. And so that's what we do because of it. At some point in my life, I said yes, I believe that. That's the gospel. I believe it. I became a Christian because of it. That's how it works. If you're listening to this message today on our podcast and you don't know what it means to become a Christian, that's what it means right there. So that whoever believes in him should not perish or go to hell, but have eternal life. But God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it. You hear people talk about Christianity, and sometimes they're really talking about Christians who misunderstand this relationship of salvation and God and all of that. And yes, it's true that sometimes well-meaning and sometimes not so well-meaning Christians have given Christianity a, a bum rap because they are not exhibiting what Christianity is all about. And people tend to look at that counterfeit or that image as an example of Christianity when in reality it's not. It's false. But the truth of the matter is, one of the things that people criticize most about some Christians is that we tend to be viewed in some circles as judgmental. What does that mean? It means that I'm more concerned with correcting your behavior than I am with having correct behavior in my own life. And I take a holier-than-thou position about it. This clearly says that's not Christianity. 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's really important. And it should be really important a way we should try to live our lives in such a way that we live that out so that people don't feel judged by us. They feel that we want to share the love of Christ with them. So the incarnation, the explanation, the provision. Let's talk about the author's paradoxical message. Many times Christianity is like, well, and this and these, they, they can't, they're opposites. How can they both be true? And yet in literature and other places, we see, wow, we got something going on. Many of the truths in scripture, as in nature, have a paradoxical, like part of it's true and seems like the other part can't be true, but yet they are, and how's that possible? And in examining that proposition, you find a higher understanding of this truth or that truth. Give you an example. My dad, when I was little, taught me what a paradox was. He said, keep laughing and I'll give you something to laugh about. Whack. Okay, I wasn't laughing after that. That was a paradox. What was so confusing? Why was it so difficult to understand what Jesus brought? The disciples didn't get it at first. What was in the author's message that was so difficult to understand? And let me list for you several paradoxes of, uh, just in, in terms of the, the way the English describes it. The first is this, dying in order to live. How do you die in order to live? Well, Jesus clearly taught that the path to living is dying. Okay, how's that work exactly? Because if I die, am I not dead? Well, listen further. It's, it's not a play on words, but it has that quality in that it's helping us to understand that there's something more than what we see on the surface. There was a man who thought he was dead. When his wife asked him to carry out the garbage, he would say, I can't, I'm dead. Finally, in exasperation, she asked him if he thought dead men could feel pain. When he responded negatively, she pinched him as hard as she could, to which he blurted out, what do you know? Dead men can feel pain. So Jesus taught that unless we die, we cannot live. Listen to what he said in John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Paul later would confirm this truth in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and yet I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the picture there is that what we die to specifically is ourself, or we die to sin and live for God. So now we begin to understand how they can be true. Instead of living for self, we die for self in order to find life in Christ. You can't have it both ways. In the book of Matthew, we, it teaches that in order to gain, you must lose. So it's again a twist on this same idea. Jesus taught that the only way to gain was to lose. 
Listen to what Matthew recorded in chapter 10. Jesus, and I quote, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, it's talking about sovereignty of your life. Who is your boss? Who is in control of you? Who directs your agenda? I think we all understand that. We live in a country that has a government. We have laws. Sometimes people follow them. And it's designed to create an orderly society. And in this particular case, it says, whoever finds his life will lose it. In other words, you give away the sovereignty of your life to the Lord Jesus, who you respect as your God, as your provider, and as a person, a God who has wisdom about the choices you should make. In other words, you give sovereignty of your life over to God. To anyone wanting to know which direction God wants you to go today, listen to this one more time. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So you go figure out with God what that means. I challenge you. I don't care if you're 85 years old or eight years old, it's still true. It was true for me the day I accepted Christ. It's true for me today. It's true for my wife and family and kids and their spouses and their kids. And it's all true for all of you. Whoever finds his life loses it. In other words, you think you got a good thing going and you've left God out of it? Think again. That's an illusion. It may sound good when you talk to your friends about it. and You may drive a fancy car or you may be poor. I don't know. But you may be glad that you've successfully navigated life without God. Good luck. Let's see how that works out for you. I don't mean that in an arrogant way. To anyone knowing, wanting to know which direction God wants you to go, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Bible and God either are true and right or they aren't. Okay? If you believe that God is right, there it is in black and white. Why haven't you followed it, is my question. Why haven't I followed it? Well, because we're sinful and we forget. That's why we talk about things. We remind each other about it at church and in Bible studies and in our prayer time and so on and so forth. Why? In order to go back to the things we know to be true about God in order that our behavior might be more Christ-like. The missionary Jim Elliott understood this. You may know that he lost his life killed in South America years ago, seeking to bring Christ to the people of Ecuador. And his famous quote, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that one more time so you can remember it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's losing to gain. There's a third paradox. We find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to call this one triumph through weakness. Usually we see triumph through triumph. When the Cowboys win the Super Bowl last time in 1996, they triumph. Ever since then, they're terrible. Okay? Whoever wins, wins, right? And whoever loses, loses. That's the way life works. Okay? So when Jesus said triumph through weakness, or Paul in this case, 
he's making a point of a truth that is bigger than, uh, you know, he who has the gold makes the rules. That's the golden rule. Many examples of triumph through weakness found in Scripture. Over and over and over again, the men and women of faith were honorable, humble men and women. They let God work in their life. They were what we call instruments. They were not trying to be God. When they did try to be like God, as in King Saul or some others who made terrible mistakes, they were judged for it and their life did not go well. Noah experienced triumph through weakness. He endured ridicule for building an ark. Hosea was scorned by his wife. Paul was humiliated, beaten, and jailed. Why? Because they understood that to follow Christ meant to be weak and that the ultimate benefit there was a spiritual strength that allowed them to persevere through difficulty. Paul himself, when he was in jail, wrote this, My grace is sufficient for you. He's quoting Jesus, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Huh? So you have to think about that. It's not just churchianity words. I mean, it Usually, sometimes that's where we begin to think about stuff. We've heard it all our lives if you've been in church. But for someone who's never heard this message, this sounds kind of weird, I would imagine. What is he saying there? What, why would Jesus say, when I'm weak, then I'm strong? What he's talking about there, again, is trust. When I trust myself, I am weak. When I trust God, I am strong. In other words, when I do what God wants me to do, I am obedient. When I don't, it's anything else. And I get in trouble. And I make mistakes. All of us have experienced this. We go along with life and we are trusting God for every step of the way. And then the next thing you know, we get busy with something and our attention shifts to, oh, I got to do this over here on the side. And it's maybe a good thing. So we go after that and start working on that. And before too long, we realize, oh my gosh, it's been several days or maybe longer since I've actually asked God to help me. And you step back from that and you think, oh gosh, and you, you know, you fix that. But our nature is not to do it right. One of the biggest lies in the world is that humanity is good in nature. It's not. It's bad in nature. Read anywhere in scripture about human nature. It's deceitfully wicked according to scripture. Yes, there are examples of good people. But even those good people, when left to their own devices over time, will make bad choices. No one embodied triumph through weakness like Jesus. You look at what happened to him. He stood before men that were accusing him. He stood firm. He was patient even while he was being abused. Jesus said, as quoted by the Apostle Matthew in chapter 9, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, 
but the sick. So here's the picture here, is that when we understand that we're not healthy, we're sick, we need a doctor, the doctor's Christ. And when you go to him, he fixes you. That's a pretty simple picture, isn't it? And you go to the doctor when you're sick. So the idea is that it's not the well that need a doctor, it's the sick. They say in evangelistic circles that you can't just talk about the love of God. It's pervasive and true, for sure. You have to talk about the problem of sin, too. Because until somebody realizes that they're sick, they don't need a doctor. And that's why so many people that you meet, oh, well, it's fine for you to be whatever you want about God, but I choose to be an atheist. Well, that person obviously has not really come to grips with the fact that their own nature is not what they think it is. It's going to lead them in a direction. And I, pr I will make this uh, comment. It happens to be my personal opinion. Um, the biggest objection to Christianity isn't the love of Christ. Everybody can agree that when you look at Christ's behavior, it was loving. The biggest objection to Christianity is that it, Christianity makes a claim on me. In other words, I have to find my weakness. I have to give up in order to receive. That's the whole point of what we're talking about here. And that if I'm unwilling to let Christ direct my life, that says a lot about whether I really understand whether I've accepted his salvation. Now, I'm not preaching a work salvation. I'm simply saying Bible teaches also that we must examine our lives to see if we are in the faith. And I think that's what that means. So word to the wise, please understand that being a Christian is not just about a belief system. It is about understanding that God is sovereign over your life. And as such, being your God has the right to direct you. And he will direct you in a good way. So we don't want to do that because why? Well, we want to do what we want to do. That's the essence of sin. So unless you grapple with the sin thing, you can't really do that very well. So let me say that about that. Lastly, a last paradox. I say this, the kingdom that God is building is not a kingdom of this world. So many people, when they viewed what Christ did on the earth, they were disappointed because they didn't understand that Christ was not there to rid them of the Romans or whatever oppression, slavery, or inequity, or whatever it is that was in their life that was true. He was not General George S. Patton for the Jews. He was not, he was a revolutionary, but his kingdom was not of this world, it was of the next world. And even though I believe in our political process, I believe that Americans ought to be connected and involved with the way our government is run, Christians have to also understand this, that if I get a chance to have 10 minutes with somebody, I'd rather find out what they think about Jesus than what they think about Biden or any Republican. Seriously, folks, that, 
let's understand that Christianity makes a difference not only in the world to come, but in this world. Yes, that's true. But if time is short, talk to people about Jesus. Because Jesus is the only thing that can make a difference in the world to come. I believe there will be plenty of people from all political persuasions that have an authentic relationship with Christ and will be there in heaven. Some people would like you to think that's not possible. I'll let God be the judge. But I think that it is not only possible, it's probable because there, in every nation, in every economic class, in every race, there are numbers and numbers and people that are represented there that have come to know Christ as their Savior and will be enjoying eternity with us. And if Christians cared more about eternity than they did about fundraising, then possibly more people would hear about Christ. So I'll just leave it at that. Jesus himself said in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And what he's talking about is, if I wanted it, folks, I could just, you know, it'd be like, you know, Marvel. And Jesus showed who he was by how he stood in front of Pilate, how he stood in front of the Romans and accepted their um, corrupt punishment. And he did all of that for you and me. And if people could see that through our example... I don't know how somebody doesn't fall on their knees and say, thank you, God, for what you've given to me through Jesus. If they believe that, that's the gospel. Christ came to save sinners. My kingdom is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom, Jesus said. It's not about armies, countries, political philosophies, and winning and losing. Yes, truth is expressed in all systems. And when you choose any system that's earthly, a political system, a, a civic, whatever it is, <coughs> there are principles that you should follow. And the ones that matter are based on truth of Scripture. But it is also true that the kingdom that Jesus was talking about was not the United States of America or Rome or Greece or any of the uh, great cultures that have existed throughout human history. It is a spiritual kingdom. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God is the kingdom of relationships between man and God. It concerns itself not so much with the now as the later. Not the immediate, but the eternal. Not the physical, but the spiritual. Jesus' message, even today, is not accepted because many people don't fully understand or appreciate those paradoxes. They've never really given it any serious thought because so many times 
Christians, errant Christians, stand in the way of the explanation of who God is. And I say that with a great deal of grief for our faith. And I'm ashamed at what I see sometimes false example of, of what people think God must be like. Wouldn't it be so much better if when people that looked at us, they would say, wow, talk about the explanation of God. That person is beautiful. They're not necessarily forgetting everything that is true about the world. They simply understand that God's kingdom is of the next world. And that's where they're heading. Jesus' message is paradoxical today. To many, the truth of Jesus is foolishness. Well, the Bible says people will think it's foolish. They do. And now they're not embarrassed to say so. You can read it all over Facebook, all over every place you want to look. Christians are stupid. Christians are wrong. Christians are this or that or the other. And it's really terrible, some of the things that, um, that are being said. This is a hard experience for believers because we get angry about it wrongly and we understand, you know, that our ego's on the, well, it's not, it shouldn't be. And we don't take responsibility for why somebody must think that because it wasn't me. Well, all you can do is love people, that's all. The good news is still about the next world. So three questions to ask. Here's the first one. Ask yourself this question. Even if you're here today live, if you're listening to this and I've never met you, how are you doing? Here's the first question. Have I placed my faith in the author, Jesus Christ? And the question is one, am I saved? Am I a Christian? Have I placed my faith in the author. If you've done this, you're a Christian. There is no other way, Jesus said, to experience the next life with God other than Jesus. Again, people will tell you different things. Oh, that's your truth, that's my truth. No. There is truth and there is error, period. Jesus is truth. The word of God is truth. Anything that doesn't say what this says is wrong. Doesn't mean you don't love somebody that disagrees or believes that. It means that it can't be true. There's no other way. You must place your faith in the author of this book and believe that God paid the bill that you owed you got the get out of jail free card, so to speak. If you have done this, you have been saved from your sin. That's step one. None of the other steps matter until you've accomplished that one through Christ. The second thing, just as important, they go hand in hand. Second question you must ask yourself, have I given him authority in my life? In other words, isn't it interesting that author is the beginning of the word authority? 
Have I given him authority in my life? In other words, is he the boss? Or did I just join in because it was convenient? Or because it was socially acceptable? Or because everybody around me is believing this, so I'm going to step in there because I want to be accepted. That's not a reason for becoming a part of the faith. Those that know Jesus Christ can take the next step. Sometimes people start talking about taking that step of obedience when they're not Christians. You can't do it. That's fake. I mean, you can try. You're going to fail. Because you don't know how, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Once you have Christ, he gives you the Holy Spirit. Then you can accomplish what's called, church word, sanctification. Becoming more like God. It is giving him complete control of your life. When you yield to his authority, he makes us become the people he intended for us to be. We become like him. And that means we become beautiful. We become spiritually powerful. We can accomplish things that were never possible before because we were too busy being ourselves, living for ourselves. The process of yielding to God's authority is quite painful. So we don't do it because it hurts. We got to give up something sometimes. We have to move over here, which is a risk. We have to leave our comfort like every missionary that ever went overseas. We have to not do something that we were doing in order to do what God called us to do if he calls you to do something, and he does. Because our nature always thinks when we follow God, our sinful nature always thinks that God wants to hurt us in some way. What? Well, why do we think that? Because every time I turn around, it's painful to become a Christian. Okay, stick with me here. Every serious lesson I ever learned in my life was through pain. Every single one. I never just got something handed to me and, oh, there's the deepest lesson about how to be mature or how to be loving or none of it. I never trusted God more through my plenty. I don't think you did either. I only learned to trust God more when it hurts. Because when it hurts, I have to decide, do I really believe this or not? Because there's no other reason to do it unless I really believe it. Because when I do it, it hurts. I'm losing something in order to gain something. I am giving up the authority in my life to the one who deserves it because of what he did for me, because I belong to him. The process of yielding to God's authority is painful because our nature is to think we are going to lose something. This is one of the most misunderstood facts of Christianity. That God wants to deprive us of everything that is fun to do or fun to be. That there is no pleasure in a spiritual walk. Nothing could be further from the truth. When you find yourself there, step back from that and at least say, well, Pastor Bryce said this. 
just remember that we've talked about it. Give God a chance to show you what he means by providing for you through loss. There are times in your life that it takes your breath away how much something hurts. Takes your breath away. And you have a choice there to make. Did God do this because he hates me? Or does God promise to deliver me through it? And the answer is the latter. So if that's true, what? God, (laughs) be patient. He's right around the corner with the answer to that most of the time. Once in a while, he's going to ask you to wait. That's because he wants to accomplish something in your life in the meantime. And something, it's like cooking a cake. You don't just put the ingredients in the oven and open it right back up because it'll be kind of sloppy. It takes the heat of the oven to cook the cake. Same thing with pain and trouble. It has to cook in you for you to see what God intends. I don't know why. That's just how you make a cake. That's how you make Christians too. The authority in my life. One day, after a busy morning chasing votes, the governor, not our governor, arrived at a church barbecue. We're going to say the governor of New Mexico. We'll say that. But I'm I'm not saying the governor of New Mexico in case someone is quoting this 10 years from now online. As the governor moved down the serving line, he had out his plate to the woman serving chicken. She put a piece on his plate and turned to the next person in line. Excuse me, the governor said, but do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? Sorry, the woman said, but I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. But I'm starved, the governor said. Sorry, the woman said, only one to a customer. The governor decided this time he would throw a little authority around. Do you know who I am? He said, I'm the governor of this state. She said, do you know who I am? The woman. He said, no, I don't know who you are. She said, well, I'm the lady in charge of the chicken and it's one piece of chicken per customer. She understood her authority. God does too. I wish we understood God's authority as well as that woman understood her own. So last question. I'll leave you to enjoy your Sunday or whatever day you hear this. Has my life been changed by him? My life, has it been changed? A confirmation that you are saved is that God changes you. He changes you in some ways you might expect and some ways that you never expected. Most of the change can be seen in Scripture because the qualities that he puts in you are on record. It may have you end up in places you never intended. I spent pretty much my whole scholastic life studying to be a musician. And in the year 2004, I gave that up as a career to start this church. I never expected that. But here we are. And I'm glad we did. Thank God. So, a confirmation that you have saved and given Christ authority in your life is the change that begins to happen in you. Sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's fast. The change that occurs is your testimony. 
Some people say, well, I don't really have a testimony. Well, then let's ask yourself the question, where's the change? And if there is no change, if you're just acting like the rest of the people that don't know Christ, step back and take stock. Because Christ in your life brings change, always. That's the mark of the Christian, is transformation. If there's no transformation, ask yourself, in other words, I'm not going to ask about you, it's not my place, but you should ask about you, is my salvation true? Did I really mean that? <coughs> because if Christ hasn't sought to change me in some ways, and if I haven't led him, what was the whole first step about? Good question. The change that occurs in us is our testimony. That's what we can talk about. That is the thing that God gives you to share. You are an expert in your life. Nobody can argue with that. What you need to share with people is this is what Christ did for me. They won't argue with you about that. They will argue about theology. But they won't argue about who do you love and why. Not all change is dramatic, some is more gradual, but this change is evidence of a spiritual reality. There was a man named Dieter Zander, he was a pastor of the first Gen X church in America, and he was speaking at a conference about reaching people in an age of relativism, which means no real objective truth, so to speak. That's the, the lie. He cited a Barna study that asked people to use single words to describe Jesus. They responded, wise, accepting, compassionate, gracious, humble. Then he asked them to use single words to describe Christians. They said critical, exclusive, self-righteous, narrow, and repressive. <coughs> I accept that that might be true. I'm ashamed of that, are you not? that people think that about Christians when they don't think that about Christ. We have some work to do constantly in the way that we're perceived. Now, I understand that people sometimes perceive you wrongly. I get all that. But there is a difference between knowing the good news. Listen to this. There's a difference between knowing the good news and being the good news. Think about that. What we are exhibiting is not an intellectual faith only. It is intellectual. It is a life-changing effect. That's why this whole business of how we live is inextricably linked to our salvation and our testimony. Xander says, we are the evidence. We are. How we live our lives is the evidence. Everything counts in this court of law, every minute of our lives. Do you and do I stand up in the audience when history is played and do we cry, author, author? Let's pray. Father, thank you today that you are the finisher of our faith. You wrote it. You have defined it. You give it, you power it, you evaluate it, and you sustain it and support it. 
And Father, even you reward it when we get to heaven. I pray, Father, for the testimony that each believer has. But I also pray for people that don't know Christ, that they might be able to look past some of the things they might see in some Christians to see a God who is holy and perfect, that loves them, that sent himself, his only son, to this world to die horrible, horrible criminal death on the most painful method of execution possible in human history in order to show us and to accomplish um, a gift and a payment that was made to you on our behalf. Thank you, Father, that that act of love is a statement about your authority in our life. You've earned the right to be our God, Father, and we thank you for it. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. For those of us that already do know you, we are grateful for you, grateful for all of the things that you've given us, things that you continue to explain to us in your word. We're grateful for the friends that we enjoy that can share our faith and can hold us accountable to good behavior, can sustain us when we hurt, when we're lonely, when we're afraid. Father, also for those in our world that do not know you, I pray especially for them, for each person that may hear these words in this podcast, that they might understand that there is a God that loves them and his name is Jesus Christ. And he has shown that love by the way that he was brought into the world, the way he conducted himself, and the way that he died and was resurrected. Thank you, Father, for who you are. Thank you for history, that we can see your work. Help us to see who you are today and to live our lives accordingly. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Join us for the next lesson in this Center Stage teaching series and tell a friend about our His Story podcast. For more information about Center Stage Church in Gold Canyon, Arizona, visit centerstagechurch.org.